You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 21st of February 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Midori House, live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster, and coming up... The right wing, the hardline anti-EU awkward squad that have destroyed every leader for the last 40 years are now running the Conservative Party from top to toe. 7, 8, 11, 13? Could two more Conservative MPs leave the party to join colleagues and opposition politicians in a coalition against the UK's handling of Brexit? Send them back or put them in detention centres. Australia's hardline approach to migrants is loathed by the international community, but loved by populists. Could they replicate it? Florian Egley and Quentin Peel will be here to discuss that and the day's other news, including as Donald Trump reportedly includes a climate change denier on a panel investigating the effects of climate change on national security, we ask if the environment can ever be a centre-stage political issue. All that plus Switzerland unveils a smaller, glossier version of America's Air Force One. Are planes the must-have symbol of a nation's soft power? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House and joining us from Monocle Studio in Zurich is Florian Egli, who is Vice President of Foras, which is the Swiss think tank on foreign policy. And here in London, I'm joined by Quentin Peel. He's an Associate Fellow at Chatham House. He's also a Financial Times contributor. So, gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, let's start off with the news that two senior Conservative MPs say they will resign from the party if it doesn't change its direction on Brexit. The threat from Justine Green and Dominic Grieve comes a day after three of their colleagues left the party to join an independent coalition of MPs from the opposition Labour Party. It's another major headache for British Prime Minister Theresa May, who's promised to give MPs a vote on Brexit by the 27th of February. However, she's under heavy pressure from pro-EU ministers to put a revised deal before the Commons and rule out a no-deal Brexit. Quentin, it seems that a day can't go by without referring to some chapter in the Brexit saga. But are more Conservatives likely to abandon their party to join this independent bloc? And if so, which names are in the frame? Yes, I think there may well be more. Uh, The key question at the moment is whether Theresa May carries on with her game of chicken and actually blunders, if you like, into a no-deal Brexit. Because a no-deal Brexit would appall at least a third of the members of, I think probably, of the Conservatives in the House of Commons and in the government probably uh, four members of the cabinet might quit. Now, they mightn't quit and walk straight into the new party, but nonetheless, they are deeply unhappy. And I think that the game of chicken that Theresa May's been playing all along to 
if you like, terrorise her party into backing a very unpopular Brexit deal by threatening no deal, looks set to blow up in her face. It's the one thing that the real hardliners actually want. They want to crash out of the European Union. And there is a huge divide within the party, which is only just coming to the surface now with those three women who left the party yesterday and joined the independent group. I'd like to get the, the view from Switzerland. Florian Egli, um, the, the, the key expression which, which um, stands out from that is this, is this game of chicken and also the word blunder. Is, is that how it's seen, the Brexit negotiations from a Swiss perspective? Is there a sense that perhaps Mrs May is losing control of the situation and is playing a very dangerous game which, if badly handled, could blow up in her face? Yes, definitely. I mean, from from over here, it's been a very chaotic situation um, right from the start. So for about um, almost two years now, um, it's it's been from the onset um, very unclear what the actual options are. And I think part of what we see now is the result of um, he- holding referenda or voting um, on issues without actually um, knowing what the options are. Um, and that being said, it's not just that um, the people that voted didn't know what the options were or are today, but it's also that the people in power um, don't really seem to know what the options are, and it seems to change sort of from week to week, and it's very hard um, to see to see where this is going. And maybe maybe one note here: it's interesting that that it could be um, sort of a sign of of I mean, both um, the Conservatives and the Labour Party is kind of struggling to keep um, their members in in the boat, and and we've seen parties breaking apart, traditional parties breaking apart in Italy, in France. Um, might be the UK might be up next. Who knows? Well, that's an interesting point which I'd like to explore with you, Quentin Peel, because as Florian said, we've seen political landscapes in other parts of of Europe fracturing the familiarity is going away do we have to accept that something similar is happening here in the united kingdom that we couldn't be immune to these forces absolutely i think that brexit has probably made matters even more fraught here in britain uh, than they are in some of the other countries but right across europe you've seen the old traditional parties consistently losing ground as in a way the fragmentation of politics has happened right across in in france in germany certainly in italy we're seeing it in spain you're seeing it right across but brexit has a particular poison for britain But on the other hand, there is one, if you like, weirdness about the British system, which is this first-past-the-post election system, which makes it really difficult for new parties to get off the ground. So even if all logic were to dictate that both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party should split right down the middle, I mean, the Labour Party is run by the hard left and the Tory Party is increasingly dominated by the hard right. They should split, but everybody's terrified of actually walking out of the parties that win seats because of this first-past-the-post system. That if you have, in the past, we've seen centre parties launched in Britain, most famously the Social Democratic Party. They won 25% of the vote and only about 10% of the seats. So they really couldn't get off the ground. Mm. And and I guess, Florian, that uh, the undertone to all this is that, look, the the first-past-the-post system that may be the positive of Brexit, for want of a better term, is that it showed that uh, this system has, dare I say, outlived its usefulness and maybe it's time to actually have a thorough root and branch reform, something which is a bit more reflective, if you like, of um, the way that the public is feeling in terms of what we expect from our politics. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, it it might. I mean, it's hard to comment um, from here, but it might be that that just the whole system is outdated to an extent that that people also um, actually don't feel represented anymore, um, which then turns into a very very dangerous game. And I mean, it's it's kind of it's not the only case in Europe. Um, I mean, in in France, for example, um, you've seen the first round in in the elections where four parties basically split the vote between them, all sort of around twenty above 20%. And in the end, um, Emmanuel Macron actually has a comfortable majority that also doesn't reflect um, what the initial sort of vote was when there were um, sort of several choices and more than just two. So I think, I mean, in general, we have to we have to start thinking how um, can we make use of, of new means, for example, of, of, of digitalization to actually um, make democracy attractive again and actually um, motivate people to engage and, and to, to, to start these debates and to go vote um, because um, they feel that they have an actual say and, and, and maybe it's also a bit we have to find more nuanced way um, of, of holding referenda or of, of voicing an opinion than just saying yes or no on issues where once again the options are not very clear. It's interesting to hear the perspective from Switzerland, where, of course, you have the referendums built into your system constantly. But in Britain, this very rare occasion when we've had a referendum without any clear thinking about how it should be organised and so on, is actually in real conflict with the parliamentary democracy uh, on the other side. So in Parliament, you have, you know, not... The parliamentarians who are voted by constituency who actually disagree with the outcome of this referendum and that's really why we've got deadlock but the second point i wanted to make was this it's not only the traditional political parties that are seeing huge strains uh, within them in the current situation it's also the integrity of the entire country because what you've had is a fragmentation where scotland is essentially now being run by the scottish national party and in Northern Ireland, you have a situation where the possibility of a majority vote in Northern Ireland for reunification of Ireland, for Northern Ireland to vote to join the South, is suddenly back on the agenda because of Brexit. If the, the idea that Brexit might bring on a hard border in Ireland would actually produce a majority in the North, according to the polls, who would vote for a united Ireland. And, and this is the contradiction, isn't it, uh, Florian? Because whenever the question about um, the, the referendum is broached in public, there are a lot of people who want, to, who, who want us to, to leave Europe and they just say, look, let's get on with it. You've got others who say, look, we didn't really know what we were voting about because we never knew. We had no idea that there was the potential to actually... Um, bring together the two Irelands and perhaps have a Scotland which although geographically bound to England could effectively end up governing governing itself so the question which I'm getting at is clearly referendums are part of the Swiss experience why do you, why are you guys getting it right and somewhere along the line we've we've got it wrong <laughs> we've provoked this terrible mess and we don't quite know how to deal with it <laughs> I'm not so sure if we if we always get it right. Um, well, you haven't I, had anything as bad as this. <laughs> yes, but we we have. To, I mean, we constantly, constantly struggle in defining our relation to Europe, to the European Union, through many, many rounds of popular votes on different issues, from migration um, um, to sort of um, questions on the judicial system. Um, so we. Th- 
it seems to be a very attractive topic um, um, and it seems to be something that really preoccupies also a large um, share um, share of the population but I think it's kind of maybe it's it's a bit of a it's a tricky situation let's put it that way because to one um, on the one hand it's kind of normal or obvious that people would want to to have referenda and would want to voice their opinions on the other hand um, our world is getting so complex that many issues um, are extremely difficult to put on a, on a yes no scale um, and and I think a way to balance this is, is what we are trying to do in Switzerland is is to have actually very much sort of informative campaigns to to sort of try to um, convey as much information as possible beforehand on the issues that we vote upon and then also to leave a certain degree of flexibility to the parliament in actually implementing um, what the result of the vote was. So it's kind of this two-way thing. You provide more information and on the other hand in the back end you provide a bit of flexibility to, to allow the people to make sort of direction choices but not to sort of prescribe um, what exactly needs to be written in which law. Um, so to, to give a bit of flexibility in the back end as to how to implement um, that kind of direction you're getting from the from the popular um, or from the referenda. Well, I guess in the case of the United Kingdom, we've let the genie out of the bottle. But um, <laughs> I'd like to get the sort of final word on this um, from Quentin, because look, bringing it back to the situation with Mrs May, she has to negotiate with Europe. The latest party defections, aren't they going to weaken her negotiating hand with the EU? And doesn't it really reinforce their view that she's a weak leader who fundamentally isn't going to bring anything new to the table. So apart from the normal courtesies, what is the point of her being in Brussels? I, very little, I think. I think there are two things going on. One, uh, they do indeed see that her chances of getting a majority in Parliament, if they do make some pretty fundamental concessions, i.e. give her space on this insurance policy, the so-called backstop, to make sure there's no border between the two parts of Ireland, um, they're not going to do that if she can't deliver, and the chances of her delivering are very small. And secondly, I think she has constantly, throughout this entire process misunderstood how you negotiate with the European Union. She doesn't understand it. She doesn't like it. And it's pretty obvious. And she just gets it wrong. The, the United Kingdom has put itself in an incredibly weak position by asking to leave without working out how, when and where it wanted to do so. And that's the problem we got. Oh dear, but we live to fight another day. <laughs> Moving on now. Immigration is a hot-button subject with populist politicians who've exploited public fears over the issue to win support. They often cite Australia's zero-tolerance approach as an example of how a tough stance can work. Asylum seekers in boats are either turned back or those who make it to the country are shipped off to remote camps in Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Well, recently the policy was dealt a blow when a court ruled that migrants in offshore camps should receive medical care in Australia. So could that soften the public view on the government's migrant policy? Well, Florian, the, the government has basically defended this strategy because it says, look, what we're doing is a success because it's actually stopped the number of boat people or stopped a large number of boat people reaching it's sure. So from your point of view, if you're going to look at it from a distance, I mean, do you feel that in some respects there's an element of truth to that or overall do you judge it to be a failure? I think it's an extremely short-sighted policy and it's also a very short-term success. So one term that always comes to my mind in these 
um, in these discussions is is um, from the strategic management um, literature kind of um, where, where one of the principles is um, do not bet against trends right it's always a very it's a very stupid decision as a, as a company as a leader to bet against really major ongoing trends and I'll give you three trends that I think um, are at play when we talk about about migration and that's that's actually globally that's not um, Australia specific or Europe specific um, so one is um, transport costs are going down so it becomes cheaper and cheaper to travel and that's to travel legally or illegally that's to travel by air or um, 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 boat um, basically any means of transport. The second is information access is actually dramatically increasing. So people all over the world um, have more and more access to um, what's happening around the world in different places. So you basically, um, now when you're living um, in Niger or in, or in Senegal or um, in, in, in a West African country, you can pretty much precisely know um, what life is like in, in, in Europe. So you have access to these informations. Um, and the third one is that income um, globally is actually increasing and and what, what the failure is that many many sort of also politicians and policymakers think that well if if these people um, get richer then they will be less inclined to actually get on the journey and, and try to come to Europe or try to come to Australia well actually research is showing that the opposite is true so we're talking about something like an inverted u-shape so um, if you're starting from after from being quite poor um, by actually increasing your income you're increasing the likelihood that you're able to travel and that you're actually going to go um, on a migration journey um, and so it's it's kind of these all of these trends together um, are just painting a picture where I think migration is a fact and it's nothing that will actually change this and the question that we have as societies is how we deal with it but not whether we can stop it or not because that's not possible and that's the point isn't it Quentin that whenever we listen to the rhetoric surrounding immigration it's it's not really a case of controlling it so to speak it's stopping it altogether and then once you've stopped it the people who've somehow got through the system you find ways of removing them well it's it's unstoppable essentially and i think that's what you know florian's just mm. been saying sure. but that's the point though a lot of politicians are not actually bringing home that reality they're saying look you know we need to stop it completely or perhaps bring it down to manageable levels whatever a manageable level is and they're completely confusing the two groups of migrants that's to say genuine refugees who are fleeing conflict fleeing persecution and economic migrants who are poor not the absolute poorest they tend not to be the ones who leave it's those who are just starting to come up mm. the income chain who actually have got the incentive to actually go and try and find a better life but the the political backlash against it deliberately mixes up those two groups. So what the Australians have been doing is really exploiting their geography. They are a massive island. Mm. They can actually stop people. Uh, they've then effectively bullied some of their neighbouring states into just taking these dreadful camps of migrants. And it is sort of out of sight, out of mind, I fear, for rather a lot of Australians who seem to think, well, the policy has worked. We'll go along with it. Mm. And then more and more reports have come of, of the 
mental health problems of children who are being just left there to rot in places like Nauru. And I think that's what's caused the backlash against the government. They're now trying to, you know, pin it all on the opposition and saying, we're going to get overwhelmed by migrants. We're not talking very large numbers. Far more irregular migrants come in by air, come in through, if you like, very visible routes uh, and stay. And Australia, of course, is a country of immigration. That is the reality. Mm. But but let's, let's explore this in a little bit more depth, Laurie. I mean, people, politicians have, have made great play with um, immigration, notably the ones in Europe and uh, the, 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 the um, movement of people from um, Syria coming to, coming to Europe, the whole argument about borders, etc. But how much of a vote winner is immigration? Because I guess that after a while, it just runs out of any heft. It, it just wears thin. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I guess it's a great question. And it, it depends, in my experience, it just depends on how much actually the the civil society organizes how much there is a campaign in the other direction and how much in the end you're able to to frame the issue and that's something um, that is that is often that is often forgotten we've kind of settled in and we try to ex- or kind of accept that that migration is has become a topic for the right wing typically populist parties that they can just exploit and run with it um, but on the other hand if you look at Switzerland and that's I mean Australia I'm sure it's very similar um, many many of the large Swiss companies today, from Nestle to Swatch, um, there are many other examples, have been founded by by migrants, some even by refugees. So um, it's kind of, I think there is, a, is an immense potential um, in in actually in, 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 in reaping this diversity, reaping the, the diverse backgrounds, the diverse experiences that people have made that come from different places and trying to, you know, together, um, you know, build innovative societies and economies. And, and if you can convey this message and, and actually tell this story, then um, you might be able to talk about migration in a whole different way and then um, it kind of loses this 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 black and very dreadful mm. um, um, component um, and I think then it also becomes much more difficult for um, for the typical populist parties to to ride on that on that wave sure so it's changing the narrative and very briefly Quentin look we've got a lot of populist politicians who hold up the Australian strategy as the model that we should all follow but do you think that anyone would seriously have the guts to even attempt it? No, I don't think, because I don't think it's doable with the complex geography that you've got in Europe, uh, where most countries have land borders, and it's far, far more difficult to just stop people and, and refuse to even allow them to come. But let's be absolutely clear, the Australians are in blatant defiance of international law on asylum seeking. They're just refusing to let these people come in. And that really is why it's so unpopular internationally. The worrying thing is that it does have apparently public support support in Australia and I hope that changes. Okay, well, you're listening to Midori House and coming up next in the hour, or the half hour, the White House will set up a climate change panel that will reportedly involve a climate change denier. Could that put the environment at the centre of the political stage? Weighing in at almost 400 pages, the Monocle Guide Cozy Homes is packed with everything you need to know about making a great place to live. The book is filled with handsome residences and all the contacts you need to make a home that will last a lifetime. And it's a book that celebrates the people who know homes should be able to cope with kids, dogs and a few scuff marks too. It's a book that knows a home is only as good as the community it's in. And it's a book that takes you through the front doors of everything from mountain hideaways to modernist towers. So be cosy and buy your copy today at 
monocle.com. You're listening to Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Still with me are my guests, Quentin Peel, and joining us from our studio in Zurich, Florian Egli. Now, the US President Donald Trump is looking to establish a panel examining the effects of climate change on national security. One of the panellists is reportedly William Happer, a scientist who claims the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide is good for humanity. Meanwhile, in Britain, the opposition Labour Party is drawing up plans to move the country towards a decarbonised future. Two different approaches, yet the environment doesn't always provoke the kind of passionate debate associated with immigration, the economy, or dare I say it, Brexit. The big question, of course, is is why. But let's start with you, Quentin. Do you think that the global public perhaps has a greater sense of engagement with environmental issues than it's given credit for? Well, I think there's very strong feelings held about it, and you see that uh, actually right now, for instance, with this movement in Europe where schoolchildren are coming out on the streets and really trying to shame their parents, if you like, into taking climate change seriously. Having said that, I think it's a... Re- we, is it a love-hate issue or what? We, we find it very difficult to come to terms with this because actually san- for sanity to prevail on climate change requires us all to change our own lives and our own lifestyles very dramatically. I mean, if you take just one thing, the motor car. The motor car is at the heart of so much of the pollution that we see that you and I suffer coming here to the studio (laughs) closest to two of the busiest streets in London. And that is very real. But who is going to give up their motor car? And actually, and then you saw that in France. Look at the Gilets Jaunes movement that rose up against uh, Emmanuel Macron. Why? One, because he put up the price of diesel fuel for environmental reasons. And then he tried to cut the speed limit on rural roads for exactly the same reasons. And he faces a huge backlash from ordinary people. Yeah. Uh, And Florian, look, Donald Trump himself, he's described climate change as a hoax. But in a curious way, hasn't hasn't that actually pushed it, if not within the political foreground, certainly closer? Because in a a weird sort of way, that type of perception has um, made him a bit of a a gift to the climate change debate. It has certainly put the debate um, back to centre stage, which is is good and necessary. Um, And and maybe just um, um, sort of adding to what Quentin has said before, um, it's it's hard to actually act on climate change because it's kind of the image that comes to mind is always um, it's it's you go to your doctors and and your doctor tells you um, you know um, you're a bit overweight and and you should you should watch your diet you know um, and, and but but then it's it's so inconvenient because it's really it's really you know it's a pleasure to eat and um, and and why would you restrict yourself and I think that kind of analogy can um, you can use that in when you when you look at cars um, for example too but now um, the world seems to change a bit because now your your doctor might all of a sudden be able um, to actually tell you you know I've got a different diet that um, tastes just as good as what you're usually eating but it's actually um, not um, making you gain weight and that's for if you take the example of cars that's electric vehicles so we're starting um, to slowly come to a world where actually alternatives are possible and these alternatives um, are attractive also economically and and that actually is the big big game changer in my in my perception because that um, is fundamentally um, what makes also Donald Trump's argument so weak because you're getting this sense of that is a leader that actually 
drags our country into some sort of a hole um, where others are overtaking and others are more dynamic and others are using these economic opportunities much more um, intelligently. And and you get this sense of this sort of, you know, declining clinging to declining industries and clinging to past realities um, and, and that's a very, coming back to narratives, that's a very unattractive story in a sense to tell and I think that's fundamentally what, um, what makes the opposition to, um, to, to, these, um, to these statements so strong and also um, you know, connects um, these, um, these oppositions to the youth. Um, I was, for example, um, in Zurich marching with the climate strike just a few weeks ago. It was 10,000 people um, on the streets of Zurich. It's something that hasn't happened in years. I think the last time was um, um, demonstrations against the Iraq war. So it's, you know, you you get the sense that people are actually waking up and, and... Okay, I, I want to jump in there because I'm conscious that we have we have one more subject to squeeze into that little window that we now have. But we're going to move on, in fact, Florian, to your homeland, Switzerland, because it's unveiled its answer to Air Force One, the plane that ferries American presidents around the world. The PC-24 seats eight passengers, is operated by a single pilot and is made by the Swiss aerospace manufacturer Pilatus. It also has a maximum total range of 3,704 kilometres and cost 8.8 million euros. But does it match the symbolic head? of Air Force One, Quentin. (laughs) No, it doesn't, which is a great relief. Um, I do wonder why our leaders have to insist on having these ghastly planes and and sort of making a statement. I don't think the ordinary people give them any greater respect for it. I think if there's convenience, it's fine. But actually, in the old days, of course, British Prime Minister always used to go on um, Royal Air Force planes, and everybody sits in Royal Air Force planes facing the back. It's a very weird situation, (laughs) completely unlike, you know, the sort of rather comfortable uh, time you might have on an Air Force One. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued, uh, Florian. What was the reaction of the Swiss public to this plane? Because, look, 8.8 million euros is, is very cheap. It's probably what you pay for <laughs> for Air Force One's fuel bill in a, in a week or something. But are, are the Swiss quite sort of happy about about this official plane? Or are they, well, we can't, we don't really care. Yeah, I think I think we're we're probably happy. I mean, it's a modest plane that is um, um, kind of serves how uh, or represents how Switzerland um, um, sort of goes to other countries, I guess. But I mean, even you look at the range is three thousand seven hundred kilometers, and that um, kind of brings you to the conclusion that our government representatives will actually have to take normal planes um, for many many destinations. And we've had quite a bit of a debate on on whether um, on who actually is flying first class and who isn't. So we even have some of our of our leaders, um, of our ministers, actually f- flying business class um, for for larger for larger trips. So I think, um, yeah, I, I'm, I much prefer personally this um, to to a large Air Force One, and I think it's kind of. Yeah, it kind of gives a, a sympathetic picture of, of um, how politics work here. Well, I think that if you're landlocked, you can just get the train, surely. <laughs> or am I just being very ignorant here? <laughs> you should. I wish I wish there were high-speed trains throughout Europe that, and Switzerland were connected to it. <laughs> OK, we have to leave it there. But that brings us to the end of today's show. Quentin Peel here in London and Florian Egel in Zurich. Thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Ben Ryland. It was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music coming up next and this week's edition of The Urbanist premieres at 1900 here in London and the Monocle Daily wraps up the day at 2200. Midori House is back the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>